You there, Maverick? Yeah, I am. Very uh, hey. hey, everyone. Uh, this is Reverend Maverick and Caleb uh, Mullins. Uh, we are your wacky hosts on the host, Eucharistic and Hip to Talk. And we've been trying to get online due to some technical issues. Doesn't seem like Anchor likes us. I don't think Anchor likes us at all. What are you saying? I think the devil doesn't like us. So, you know, he's going through the wires and the hardware circuitry and making it work against us, you know. You know, I think it's 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 <laughs> fitting for a time such as Lent for us to experience things like this. And oh, yeah. yeah, and we're not going to be speaking about the coronavirus and things like that. I think that would have been an awesome episode. Um, but for the sake of time, um, we won't have enough, you know, time to speak about that. And I think we could go on for hours and hours about that. So, Caleb, what are we going to be speaking to uh, speaking about today? Well, for today's short episode, I thought we would maybe tackle some issues with the doctrine of sola scriptura, as far as what is it, um, how do people perceive it, and perhaps even what are some inherent problems with the doctrine to begin with. Yeah, and so we are, uh, I think, uh, responding to the way it's defined in such confessions like the 1689 London Baptist Confession of Faith, um, you know, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and, and many of the other um, positions. And I mean, they are variants of Sola Scriptura, but I think we would say that we disagree with the heart of probably all of them. What would you say? I think that's a fair assessment. Um, I mean, we could also throw the Osberg Confession into the mix. I think we as Anglo-Catholics, um, for the most part, would not hold the Sola Scriptura, um, at least not in the way that traditional Protestants would claim that such a thing. So yeah. <laughs> pardon me if you hear me sniffing it's because my allergies are acting up. So, <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, what's, what's, what's crazy is all of the, um, the coronavirus, uh, posts on Facebook that I'm seeing. And I think, you know, we, I'm from South Africa and people in South Africa, we make light of everything. We oh, joke yeah. about everything. And I mean, we have so many South African memes and I'm, I'm looking at Facebook right now. Well, I was looking at Facebook right now and I was. I just saw a bunch of coronavirus mockery. And what people don't actually know is I spoke to um, uh, Bishop Boyd, who many of you might not know. He's from the, uh, the Anglican Churches of America and Associates. And he was telling me that the predicament in China is actually grim. And I mean, I feel I, I mean, I don't know how to feel, you know, coming from. Um, I mean, I'm coming to you now from South Korea, and I mean, it's terrifying. Um, but yeah, yeah um, Sola Scriptura, Caleb, how would you define it? I mean, if, if the most general definition, I would say it's the belief that all doctrine, all core beliefs, all things which a Christian is bound to believe is found or derived from the pages of scripture and that scripture is the supreme authority over matters governing the church. Yeah. Um, 
so basically what Ligonier Ministries, and I mean, this is to, uh, I'm, I'm just going to read what it says on Ligonier Ministries, which is the teaching ministry of the, I mean, now deceased R.C. Sproul. Uh, mm -hmm. It says that scripture is therefore the perfect and only standard of spiritual truth, revealing infallibly all those on infallibly all that we must believe in order to be saved and all that we must do in order to glorify God. That no more, no less is what Scola Scriptura means. The whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith and life is either expressed expressly set down in scripture or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from scripture unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelations of the spirit or traditions of men, Westminster confession of faith. You know, what's so funny about this is that um, when, when they say this is sola scriptura, the, the ultra Protestants are binding themselves to their own tradition. And I would argue is a tradition of men. So, yeah, Caleb, do you, yeah. you want to start off by throwing the first stone? Sure. Uh, <laughs> or or uh, maybe throwing on the first brand onto the pyre. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. Yeah. I mean, we're not burning anyone at the stake yet. Not yet. <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> the, the biggest problem that I see with the doctrine of sola scriptura is the fact that we have multiple communions. I, I'm not including these wacko non-denominational Pentecostal types. I'm talking mainly uh, confessional Protestants. We have multiple yeah. Protestant communions. Such, let's just we'll make this very general. We'll say the Presbyterians, the Dutch Reformed, the Reformed Baptists, and the, the Lutherans, um, who all make the same exact claim that scripture, you know, the sola scriptura claim, yet when, yeah. and, and in principle, they would agree with each other. But the problem is we have four different factions claiming the same exact thing that are reading the same Bible and coming away with very, 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 very different conclusions about things, uh, just to name a few of them. Exactly. Baptism, the Eucharist, church government, etc. The problem, what I would think, is if, if sola scriptura is such a binding doctrine to the Christian and, you know, and, it, and is so reliable for doing all these things that, for example, Ligonier Ministry says that it can and should do, you would think it would produce a far more unified Protestant church. But the fact is, it hasn't. It hasn't at all. And yeah. I think what I would like to point out to people listening is that I don't believe that, like, I have you ever been on a, I know you've been on a couple of Facebook posts like this, like, we'll make a claim and the person says, show me in scripture where that is. And I don't think that's. Oh, a, yeah. Yeah, I don't think that's a helpful retort or a helpful uh, demand and, in any way. And I mean, uh, I, I, I mean, uh, both of us, we have a lot of Roman Catholic friends on Facebook, sure. and um, they, they make, I mean, a lot of the same points that we're making. Sure. Um, and I mean, both of us, we're not opposed to reason and interpreting the Bible. But okay. what we're saying is, is that there needs to be at least a, a foundation 
or at least something that we can say and we can sift through and say, this is the truth. And I mean, one of the ways we do that is a tradition. But I mean, I think most people, when they become Anglo-Catholic, when they become uh, Old Catholic, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, you know, any of the apostolic churches, they say Mm -hmm. uh, things like, well, that isn't biblical. But that is actually a meaningless statement because... Um, it, it assumes that something must be, you know, said in the scriptures to be true. in order for it to be true. Where's um, R but, in the scriptures? Where's, uh, where's apple pie? <laughs> you know, <laughs> where's mathematics? Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, if, if, if that were the case, then I don't think we would really have um, a lot of the doctrines that, you know, that the early church did have. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there are some things that they just take for granted. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, Marian devotion, uh, sure. I, I, I see that pretty early. Um, I'm not saying it is probably not as developed, but, you know, why, why, was so, why are some things acceptable for them to believe? And, you know, like the ever virginity of Mary, that was an uncontested doctrine, as far as I'm yeah, as I've read. And by the reformers, for that matter, for people listening, Calvin, uh, Cramner, Luther, Zwingli, the big four, ne- and even John Knox never ever contested or challenged the ever virginity of the Blessed Virgin Mary, ever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it wasn't until later, and I mean. Yeah. And how would we know what is the consistent interpretation? This is the, I think, probably one of the most concerning um, point of, uh, you know, the the most concerning part of holding Sola Scriptura for me is that, I mean, the Lutherans, they 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 happen to get a lot of things right. But um, if you if you go, if you if you look at so many of the things that the church that the early church believed a lot of the people that are pushing this brand of sola scriptura around they reject the real presence of christ in the sacraments they reject the saving power of baptism they reject the priesthood and they reject all of these things that is pretty much a you know part and parcel of the uh the, the undivided church and so the the problem with sola scriptura is that it, it, it really is saying that the vast majority of Christians, they got this wrong. They didn't, you know, they were, they just didn't see, they did, just didn't see it. They, they're ignorant. We know better. And I mean, that is arrogance, to be perfectly honest with you. I don't know how um, anyone looks at those kind of things and, you know, and they say, well, we are re- reforming the church. And, and, and this is, I think, another concern that I have. How far do you need to go to say we need to reform? We need to reform. And there's some people who believe, you know, th- th- that there's this constant need for reformation. Simple. I don't know how, uh, and I don't know how, how different that is from a Mormon, yes, um, or a Jehovah's Witness, because they claim the same thing. And so I don't see, to be perfectly honest with you, I don't see any reason. To distinguish between them and Mormons, in, in um, principle, in, in the way they yes. think, um, I think the the doctrine "semper reformanda" that gets thrown thrown around by a lot of reformed reformed Christians 
I think it's it's a dangerous idea because I'm like, well, always reforming. Okay, well, according to the Baptists, you Presbyterians are not reformed enough, and according to Mormons, you Baptists are not reformed enough. Uh, you know, it's like how far, like you said, how far do we want to go with this? The the other thing that I see that's a problem with sola scriptura is the fact that it seems to neglect the idea that the Bible is actually a document. And what I mean by yeah is, and now I'll be quite honest. I believe the Bible is true. I believe it is the inspired living word of God and it has everything we need unto salvation. But the one thing I would like people to understand is that at the end of the day, the Bible is a written document. It is a collection of yeah. works. And like any collection of works, it has to be interpreted. That just, In a context. Yes. And I think the other thing is that when you when some people actually say to me, and I, I want to say Martin Luther actually said this, but actually made the case that the Bible interprets itself. But I think in context, yeah. what Luther was talking about was that you can understand the Old Testament in light of what is revealed in the New Testament. In that regard, yes, I understand that. But the idea that, that you can just read the Bible as it is and that any Joe Schmo out on the street can understand everything that's in it and to the fullest of their ability, I'm like, I'm sorry, but there's a lot of people called heretics who have done the same thing and come up with some very wild wild doctrines and i think the other the other thing is that if if certain protestants were honest with themselves let's say our presbyterian lutheran and uh, baptists and dutch reformed friends i think they would really have to consent that they are reading the bible through the lens of their tradition because we have things like the osberg confession we have things like the London Baptist Confession of Faith. We have the Westminster Confession. We have the, um, you know, whatever the Dutch Reform used. That is the lens by which they understand Christianity, that, and that documents what it is they believe about the, the Bible. And those four confessions are not the same. So at the end of the day, I think mm -hmm. they really are in the same boat that, that Catholic Christians are. The only difference is, yeah. is that they're really not willing to admit that as much as we would be. Like, I'm perfectly fine with saying, yep, I read scripture a certain way and I read it through a certain traditional lens. And that lens that Maverick and I would read it through, as well as um, Orthodox Christians, Catholic Christians, etc., would be the lens of the fathers. Yeah, the consensus patrium. Yes, and um, the Bible even, you know, it does speak of uh, tradition. Yes. And and uh, not all traditions are bad. Uh, let me give you one. I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I have delivered them to you. That's 1 Corinthians 12, 2. Um, and so uh, the, the fathers, for example, they, they include the New Testament as part of the traditions they receive. Yes. But... The New Testament isn't the totality of the traditions they've received. Yes. Um, and so uh, we, we also have uh, words like this. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold the traditions which you were taught by us, 
whether by word or by letter, 2 Thessalonians 2.15. Um, and I mean, it, it really is revealing because I mean, if I told you, um, if I gave you a letter um, and I, I told you X, Y, and Z, uh, you, if you knew me as a person, you know, and I told you, and I gave you some guidance on how to deliver the letter, you know, both of those things is how you know what, you know, what I'm trying to communicate. Right. You, you don't take the letter in isolation to the person writing it. And this is what, um, what Protestants do. And, you know, I have, I believe we should study um, the context, we should study archaeology and stuff. But what many people end up doing is they say, forget about what the fathers are saying. They just got this wrong. They, you know, they're the first generation after the apostles. Forget about what they're saying um, because we are smarter than them. Yes. And that I mean, um, it takes a great deal of pride and arrogance to come to that conclusion, to say that people who lived closer to the time of Jesus Christ, people who spoke many of the biblical languages that the Old and New Testament was written in, can somehow be yeah. more wrong than a German monk who primarily speaks German and Latin and all the other reformers as well. It's like... Come on, guys, this is not even good historic discipline from simply a, and, a secular point of view. And I mean, to be honest with you, the Bible has been given to the church. Yes. And it is the church who pres pre preserves those doctrines. If you are outside of the church declaring what doctrine is, I mean, I wouldn't believe you for the exact same reason that I wouldn't believe Joseph, Joseph Smith, Muhammad, or any other teacher that ex existed outside of the church. First uh, Timothy 3.15 says, But if I wait long that you may know how men ought to behave themselves in the house of God, which is the assembly of the living God, the pillar and the ground of the truth. Yes. So the Bible, the Bible stands with us being the safe God. And Jesus himself says, um, you know, the gates of Hades will not prevail mm -hmm. against the church. But if you take Protestant teaching, um, and I'm not using the term Protestant, um, you know, I'm, I'm not, because there are senses in which we are Protestant. Yes. I have no problem with that. But um, if, if you take that to its, its logical conclusion, then you, you must say that most of the church has been conquered by the devil. You know, I, that's what it is. You end up with restoration. Um, and you know, yeah. And, you know, I found it so funny. I mean, I'm going to have to I mean, if my friend does ever listen to this, um, I don't mean any disrespect towards it. But he said, how can you claim that I am a heretic when I believe in all of the essential doctrines of the faith? And I told him, well, who said those are the essential doctrines of the faith? You know, how do you know what the essential doctrines of the faith are? Because you are taking a very specific view of the scriptures, and then you're saying these are the essentials. Yeah. But we say, <laughs> the, we are saying the essential teachings of the Christian church are contained in the ecumenical council, the seven ecumenical councils. They are what is binding on us. Yeah, and the, the other thing we have to be honest with, besides the fact of interpretation and, and things like that, is the fact that, you know, 
we have to take into account that the the church, the early church for, I'm pretty sure I'm going to mess this number up, so correct me if I know, did not have a completed canon of scripture until about 300 AD, right? And I mean, they had, am I, am I off on that? Yeah. Uh, dude, I, I really need to go back to seminary <laughs> to complete a canon of scripture, canon of scripture. I, I can remember studying this back in the all strange fires thing. Yeah. Um, let me, let me see if I can look it up real quick. Yeah. What was the new Testament? Yeah. Uh, okay. So I'm wrong. So about 120 AD, but, but still the point is yeah. for 120 years, the church did not have a completed new Testament. They had Old Testaments, which, you know, since primarily the early converts to Christianity were Jews. But even then, they probably didn't own copies of the Old Testament. They would have had to have gone to the synagogue or the temple to read copies of the Old Testament because paper, yeah. parchment, um, you know, all that kind of stuff. Vellum is very, very, you know, costly. And it was something you did not want to you know, take out of the synagogue or the temple because it has a chance of being damaged. And the same, that same could be said of the early church. I mean, I doubt most of them had a copy of the old Testament. And if they did, it was probably very few. And the new Testament, you know, as far as we know, were a series of letters that were sent out and copied and sent out and copied, etc. And I mean, even think of this, uh, Irenaeus of Lyons um, who was the disciple to Polycarp, and of course Polycarp was the disciple to St. John the Beloved, uh, St. Irenaeus of Lyons quoted the New Testament frequently, and the man didn't even own a Bible, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, how, how do you make the claim that sola scriptura has always been the case whenever you have a period of 120 years or more that show quite clearly the church did not even have a completed canon and the completed canon they had was actually not the bibles that evangelicals and uh, the confessionally reformed are carrying around they had some extra books in there if you know what i mean wink wink yeah 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 uh, yeah i mean the deuterocanonical the deuterocanonical books that we call the Apostles, absolutely um now when you're surfing around um, trying to identify which are the true books of God, it assumes that there had been a faith before yes. that. Um, that even I'm saying I'm not saying that it it it, it um, is different from what is in the Bible, but the Bible didn't come isolated to us. You know, it's not like we got the Bible floating out of the sky. Hallelujah, hallelujah. I mean, it would be nice. If that's how we got the Bible. You know, it's not like the Ten Commandments. It wasn't written down by the finger of God, and then we got it, and then you know it's right. done. Uh, the Bible was given to us, um, enclosed in sacred traditions, mm -hmm. handed down um, through the centuries, preserved and guarded by the Orthodox bishops of the One Holy Catholic and Apostolic Church. Um, and, uh, yeah, you know, we, we've defended this, the, the particular interpretation that we have, because that is what the Spirit's verdict has been in this, in this instance. And I mean, we could speak about, you know, uh, about when the Bible was canonized. We can speak about all of those things. But the fact of the matter is, um, this way of looking at Scripture as, you know, it must be here in order for it to be Christian doctrine, 
um, assumes too much. Assumes too much um, that you could end up with a heresy. Like, for example, you'll never find the word the Holy Trinity in the Bible. Yeah. Right. But that's but that's Catholic doctrine. It is. So we receive it. And, you know, we, we go into 24 minutes, but yeah, I think, I, I think that pretty much uh, comes to, comes down to, uh, you know, it comes down to that. And I mean, in Anglicanism, we say there are three important things. And uh, at the, at the, at the, at the bottom, we've got, uh, I, I was reading this in, in the book Anglican Catholicism, uh, <clears throat> change, um, I'm changing faith in a changing world. And he speaks about the three things that we have. He speaks about scripture, tradition, and reason. And I mean, we're not saying that we're not interpreting anything, but um, you, you come closer to the truth, you know, actually considering what the doctors of the faith before us have yes. said. And the other thing I would like to point out to our listeners is that when we say tradition, I think people have a wrong understanding of what tradition is in the theological sense. This is not to say, for example, that a tradition is just something you do and you have no idea why, but it's become a norm, but you know it's become so ingrained that we're not going to change anything. That's not what we mean by tradition. What we mean by that is more like uh, what you would say, for example, in, in an apprenticeship where you have like a blacksmith who's a master blacksmith and he has a disciple or a, or a journeyman blacksmith whom yeah. he's training to be a blacksmith just like him. He is passing on his yeah. craft and the knowledge of his craft experientially to the next person so that he can carry on the same service for future generations. And that applies to uh, plumbers, that applies to construction workers, that applies to many different fields. That's what we mean by sacred tradition, that there is a process of the bishops discipling people to take their place as the bishop to be the defender of the church against heresies and against yeah. um, all kinds of opposition. And I think that the other problem that I see with Sola Scriptura is the fact that many people who hold to it, and forgive me, but it's almost the Muslim view of the Quran in many regards. It's the idea that, the, for those of you who don't know, our, our Muslim friends believe that the Quran has always existed. It's always existed in Arabic, I might, I might add, and that... Um, it's eternal, it cannot be corrupted, and that when Muhammad received the Quran, it was literally Muhammad listening to God. Now, they say Muhammad couldn't read or write, um, but that he dictated what Allah was saying to him, yeah. and they wrote it down. And therefore, there is no human element to the Quran other than the physical Quran itself. This is not how... Christians yeah. have viewed the Bible for the last 2,000 years. Um, I love this comparison that yeah. Christ is, is the living word. He's both God and man. And the written word, which is the Bible, is also a product of God and man. 
And so, like, for example, we'll see in one of Paul's letters, he actually mentions at one point that he's running out of ink and he left his coat and he wants somebody to bring it to him. <laughs> you know, um, he, there's these 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 really human moments we see in the Bible or like when Paul says, it's me who says this, not the spirit. Right. Um, and so, yeah, there is a real genuine human element. Paul was writing scripture but he was also writing letters. You know, he was writing letters for practical reasons. Uh, the chronicles in the Old Testament were written to be the chronicles of the king, which a lot of kings had in in, uh, in ancient times when Israel was around. So there are real, yeah. genuine human elements that are that go into the Bible. But nevertheless, the Bible is inspired. It is almost a synergistic um, effort of God and man produce this yeah. and i think it's quite quite awesome quite amazing that god values humanity so much that he allows us to have an impact and an imprint on the bible and on the sacred scriptures yeah. um, that he shows his, the way he cares for humanity is almost in the way the bible and yeah the the, the catholic faith that we confess is a, yes. a living faith it is a faith that the spirit has uh given to us and the spirit preserved and you know uh i i'd like to add this even though it's not completely sure. related but many people they sometimes ask um well you know when they come to the anglican church we have candles we have vestments and we have you know all of these things and sometimes they say well you know i'm sure that the earliest church you know in the time of jesus they didn't look like this and you know i'm inclined to yeah, say right. sure they didn't look exactly way that's going on but in the same way that you compare uh, a boy in his youth to a man that's how the church has grown yes yes um, and it has changed because it is maturing and the bible says that we need that maturing and that that maturing has come through the episcopacy through the doctors of the church that have been led by god's spirit in the spirit of sacred tradition you know, and yeah. so on. And also, so, just yeah. to point out historic context to some people who would make that argument, I'm like, you have to understand for the first almost, uh, let me see, when was the Edict of Milan passed? I gotta look this up now. It's starting to drive me nuts. Um, but until the Edict of Milan was passed in AD 313, you had a church that was undergoing 300 years of oppression from the Roman Empire where people were meeting underground and in catacombs and in people's houses and out in the country and out in the woods in order to keep themselves from being revealed and taken and martyred. And when, when you don't have an official building, well, of course your, your church is not going to look like that. But I mean, I think the other thing is people don't realize is that when you're, when you're under oppression, you gotta be, you gotta be discreet. Um, so it's like, I think it's a silly yeah. apples and oranges argument at the end of the day. Because as soon as the Edict of Milan was passed, people started making official places, what we call church buildings, where people could actually go and have church. And I would point out further that the early Christians, uh, I mean, 300, I guess we could say is early Christian, but they took inspiration from the Old Testament. And I, I loved what one Orthodox priest who was... Uh, formerly Jewish for most of his life, he said uh, Christians 
did not leave the temple and the synagogue willingly. They were kicked out by the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so we took yeah. the liturgical, uh, the liturgical uh, system from the Old Testament and incorporated it into the church. And actually, we can actually do another episode on that sometime. Maybe tomorrow, maybe yeah. next week. Who knows? I mean, next week yeah, we'll be tackling uh, some other Absolutely. stuff. So, without further ado, um, let's pray. I think it's probably fitting to pray about this whole coronavirus yes. thing. Um, I actually got the Book of Common Prayer yeah. out here, so I'm going to do that. Um, so, let's go. This is, uh, for those of you who want to follow, or maybe want to do this prayer on your own time, this is on page 50 in the 1954 Book of Common Prayer, the South African version which is the equivalent of the 1928 BCP. So this is, this is one that you can pray for issues, pandemics, and everything, you know, of that nature. So let us pray for, for succor in this time of sickness. O almighty and merciful God, with whom are the issues of life and death, grant us, we beseech thee help and deliverance in this time of grievous sickness and mortality and sanctify to us this affliction that in our sore distress we may turn our hearts unto thee through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. You know, there's a beautiful uh, prayer that is probably going to, I don't know if you want to hear it, but uh, it's, it's been a, a source of comfort for me. It's a Marian prayer, so uh, you want to hear it? O Virgin Pure Immaculate, O Lady Theotokos, O Virgin Mother, Queen of All, and Fleece, which is all dewy, more radiant than the rays of sun and higher than the heavens, the light of virgin choruses, superior to the angels, much brighter than the firmament and purer than the sun's light, more holy than the multitude, of all the heavenly armies, rejoice, O bride unwedded, O ever-Virgin Mary of all the world, the Lady, O bright, O bride, O pure immaculate, O Lady Panahia, O Mary, bride and queen of all, our cause of jubilation, majestic maiden, queen of all, O our most holy mother, more honorable than the cherubim, beyond compare, more glorious than the immaterial seraphim, and greater than the angelic throne. Rejoice, O bride unwedded. Rejoice, O song of cherubim. Rejoice, O hymn of angels. Rejoice, O ode of seraphim. The joy of the archangels. Rejoice, O peace and happiness, the harbor of salvation. O sacred chamber of the womb, flower of incorruption. Rejoice, delightful paradise of blessed life eternal. Rejoice, O wood and tree of life the fount of immortality. Rejoice, O bride, unwedded. I supplicate you, lady, now do I call upon you, and I beseech you, queen of all, I beg of you your favor, majestic maiden, spotless one, O lady Panahia, I call upon you fervently, O sacred, hallowed temple, assist me and deliver me, protect me from the enemy, and make me an inheritor of blessed life eternal. Rejoice, O bride, unwedded. I mean, I thought it was really cool. So, I very beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And 
for any priests or, or clergy listening to this, I think Maverick would agree with me here. You know, a lot of people are afraid to death of, of the sacrament being in danger of, you know, transmitting the coronavirus. You know, we have testimony from the old, from the early church that the sacrament does in fact have healing power for people, both spiritually and physically. And God has also yeah. gifted us with the, the uh, sacrament of extreme unction. I think the churches uh, need to equip themselves for such things. And this is our time as a church to shine because God is still in the healing business to this day. And I would encourage, Amen. Yes. And I would encourage all clergy members who may be listening to this podcast, please, for the sake of your flock, you know, don't don't panic and don't cancel yeah. Eucharistic services or you know things like that, please. So yeah, Absolutely. I think that's it. <laughs> cheers. So cheers until next everyone. time, folks. Bye bye. Till next time.